Welcome to episode 355 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Oh, man, you're going to throw me all off. Hey, brother. <laughs> I got already. I was even taking like a breath to say that, and you jumped right in on me. I know. I saw that you were taking that deep breath in, as I think all the listeners were waiting to hear your voice first. And I said, listen, <laughs> me to myself, I was like, let's just switch this up. Let's turn it on its head. Let's start in a totally different way. So, hey, brother. I don't hey, even know so, where to go. I don't even know how to go from here. Yeah, I know. Actually, my grand plan of just making this more interesting for the listeners, bringing some variety, which is the spice <laughs> of life, has already backfired on me. So, Obviously, not obviously, I guess if you, if for some reason, episode 355 is like the first time people are joining us, I want to say, welcome. I'm so glad you're hanging out with us. Maybe you found us on the interwebs or you went to Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You typed in something like reformed or super handsome or really cool podcast and you found your way to us. And, uh, I'm so glad that you did that. But you might then not know that we're spending the summer in the Lord's Prayer, or the prayer more after that he gives his disciples to pray as a model, but also something that they ought to recite and request before the Father. That's where we've been hanging out. And we've kind of been unashamed that we're just going to take our sweet time. Because the best thing about summer is having a delicious beverage on your porch, you're out with friends, and really hanging out and sitting in a conversation, really unpacking something or just resting and enjoying the time that you have together. And we've been enjoying that time with God and with each other. So we're into the Lord's Prayer. And in a way that we're going to say, listen, we're going to do this because it's the way that God has commanded us to pray. And we want to understand more about it so that we can apply it, that we can use it, that we can have greater and more effective and more deeper communion with God. And in this prayer, we're finding ourselves, we tick through the various petitions. We're getting into this idea of what it means that we'd ask God not to lead us into temptation. And I don't know exactly where we're going to go in this episode. We never really talk about it ahead of time. Everybody gets to hear us in real time unpack and have an actual conversation. It's totally authentic and genuine. And I think probably we're just going to end up, at least for me, in the temptation part of this. And maybe deliver us from evil is a whole th thing that we'll talk about next time. But this is like a massively packed phrase. But before we get into like taking out this luggage and unpacking our stuff and really seeing what God has for us in his text, let's affirm and deny some things, which is also a tradition on our podcast. What are you affirming with on this episode? So this is not going to be a surprise uh, to Jesse because he's heard me talk about these before. And also I think it might've been Jesse's wife that keyed me into these. I'm affirming gooder glasses. Normally, this is the point of the show where I ask Jesse if you've heard of this thing, but obviously he has. So for the the discerning listener, Gooder is G-O-O-D-R, and you can go to Gooder.com, uh, G-O-O-D-R.com. And Gooder makes a series of really, really simple, straightforward sunglasses um, that are primarily, it seems like they're primarily geared towards runners. They have sort of like a, a specific kind of 
texture and manufacturing material that prevents them from slipping and sliding. And they're super lightweight. Um, I, I wasn't a runner when I started wearing these. Um, and now that I am a runner, I appreciate them even more. Um, but they, they're relatively inexpensive. They're like, I think usually they're like 25 to $35. So if you, if you lose a pair or if they break or whatever, or if you just want a couple different pairs, cause you like different styles, it's not going to break your bank. Um, but they're light they're stylish. There's a couple different um, styles available and a couple different sizes. And they come in like fun colors. Like the ones I have now are or like bright orange frames and kind of blue lenses. Uh, but you can get kind of like the traditional just black, like dark gray frames with like black sunglass lenses. Um, I don't know. There's much more to say about them. They're just really nice. They're super comfortable. They're very light. They don't I, they don't slip off your head even when you're running. Even when you get sweaty on a run, they stick to your face pretty good. And they don't bounce around, so it's not like bouncing all over your face as you run. So yeah, I, I love these glasses. It's it's kind of like I used to buy cheap cheap like uh, gas station sunglasses, and I would always be like, why do they break so fast or why are they so uncomfortable? It's because you bought cheap gas station glasses. And here's the kicker. These aren't that much more expensive than cheap gas station right. glasses. You right. just go to gooder.com and order a pair and they ship them to you. So check it out. I don't have anything more to add. There's no deep theological truth to this, but uh, gooder, G-O-O-D-R.com. You can also buy them on Amazon if like you want Amazon Prime or whatever. Or you want to go through like smile.amazon.com and donate to your favorite charity or whatever. But yeah, I love these glasses. They're super, super comfortable. Yeah, they're just super fun too, right? Like, I, I think this sounds like kind of just a cliche recommendation. It's not exactly because these glasses also like take a beating. So like yeah. you can just feel good no matter what you're doing with them. I have a confession to make. And I can say this because my wife doesn't often listen to us talk on the podcast because she listens to me talk enough in our home. One time recently, she had a set of these gooder glasses. They were on the stairs, which it I want to say with great deference to myself. Glasses should not be stowed on a staircase. <laughs> that seems like a poor place to put them for reasons that are about to become very plain if they're not already. And she actually, so the fun thing about these glasses too is like they come in all kinds of amazing names. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've seen that. And uh, she has these Captain America style sunglasses from Gooder that she really, really loves. I came down the stairs one morning. They were sitting on the stairs. Who knows why they were there? I didn't put them there. So everybody else can do the math. <laughs> and I stepped like full weight on these glasses. And I thought, my word, we're about to have a conversation. It's going to be ugly. <laughs> and of course, I immediately released my feel from the frames. And they were totally yeah, like unchanged. So yeah. like they just took a beating. They look sharp. And the only thing I want to say is like, you might, when you hear Tony say like they were for runners, you might think like they got like some like weird aerodynamic shape, which no. makes it seem like you're in a sci-fi movie. No, they got like the traditional classic kind of like they've got aviators that kind of like just the classic sunglass shape, uh, like Jackie O style, like sunglasses. They're just super fun. So yeah. I'm with you. I have several pairs because they're affordable and I definitely beat these bad boys up. I sweat in them. I wash them. I beat them around. I've stepped on some unbeknownst to my wife and they were totally fine. Nobody knew it. it was all great. But I think like, even like, to your point, like your classic kind of like 12, $15, like gas station glasses, I'm pretty sure I would have just broke straight up. And oh, then, yeah, they would have been like yeah. embedded in the, like the bottom of your foot. You would have had to get stitches. Yeah. Something like that. So I am totally with you. It's the simple pleasures in life that remind us that common grace is a legit thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, the ones that I just got are, 
they're called donkey goggles, but they're just like bright orange and blue lenses and they just look really, really sleek. And they are kind of like, they're not rubber, but they're kind of like rubberized materials. So they yeah. like, if you bend them or you step on them or you sit on them, it's not like they're indestructible. They're not like made of adamantium, but they'll, they'll like flex a bit. So, and, and if they do break them, then you just get a new pair and you don't have to worry too much about it. Cause they're not like, they're not like hundred dollar Oakley's that you are so afraid to wear that they sit on your shelf. Yeah. Or like they have um, Gator Chomp goggles, which are also a version of orange and blue. So yeah, just just check it out. Gooder.com. Even just going to look at the website is pretty fun because exactly. there's a lot of different cool colors. And they, like, from a person who someday wants to be in, like, a position to be manufacturing, like, swag and gear and, like, marketing, I have an eye for, like, a really well-marketed product and what's fun about these like these are really simple straightforward sunglasses there's nothing fancy about them but they take the time to write like a fun little story that ties into the to the um the name of the color so this one this one i'm looking at is called falkor's fever dream and it's kind of like a purplish purplish uh frame with like a blue lens and it says, what even is a luck dragon? Ultimate fever dream of a luck dragon is to fly after us, slamming a bottle of blue Carago. That's why we made made the blue on blue sunnies to shield Falker's bloodshot eyes from that little crybaby bastion. Like they just come up with a fun and then they have a that's like just the blurb. They have like a full on story about each sunglass. That's like a fun origin story. So it's just a really well marketed, really well put together product. It's simple. It's not overly complicated. It's not overly expensive and they won't, they don't fall apart. Like they don't really break. You're more likely to lose them than you are. to yes. break them. I think. Yeah, for sure. This is one of those things where I know we talk about how much in so many ways we love the listeners, the brothers, sisters who come alongside support the podcast with their time and their attention, their listening and often their resources. And we've talked about how they go Jericho style with us and pull down all the paywalls for us <laughs> that we don't have to have advertisements. Yeah. And yet this is one of those companies I would be happy to receive sponsorship for because yeah. it's like a simple pleasure. They've just done it right. They make it fun and interesting. And it's kind of like, yeah, glasses are that weird market where to my mind, they're mostly overpriced. And you're kind of like, what do you get for like these common materials that have just been more or less put together in a very common way? Like talk about ordinary means. Like these are just, this is the ordinary means of glasses. So do yourself a favor and check out why Tony and I are spending all this time talking about sunglasses. Yeah. If anyone out there works for, uh, works for Gooder and wants to hook us up with a sponsorship, we might actually, we might actually talk about that. Somehow I doubt that's the case, but it's always worth throwing out the call to action there. Yes, this. So here's the why I say this is at the the risk of like extending this far beyond which is appropriate, which you've already done, I think at this point. But this is the kind of company that could be like we need like a whole like reformed variety of sunglasses yeah. with these like fun descriptions, right? Like it suits their personality as a company, and that's why I think maybe I'm I'm so inclined toward them. Besides, they're just being a great product. Is like they have fun. It's a little bit self deprecating. It's a little bit like understanding like you're only here for sunglasses, but we're going to make this as fun, as interesting as possible. And I feel like like what the this Wingley pair of sunglasses looks like or the John Knox set is like exceptional. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? So yeah. much latent potential here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just to get another idea of the sort of goofiness of this, they have a Marvel Comics series, which Jesse alluded to. They have a Marvel Comics Snap Survivor Shades, which features Thanos on it, which is just, just hardcore right there. Like that's just put the villain right on your temples. 
and just wear it proudly. Even I know what that means. Yeah. That, that's how far we've come. It's true. Jesse, are you affirming anything today beyond yes. my sunglasses? And let's Yes. Let's no, I totally, totally on board with the sunglasses. But when you take those sunglasses off because your eyes need to read something, let me affirm something that you should put your eyeballs on. This is a book called Range by David Epstein. It's basically about a book of what learning is like and how basically in an age of specialization and increased like ability to get so nuanced and narrow because we feel like this is the way to achieve things. There's the so-called 10,000 hour rule. This pushes against that. I read this book, got it out from the library because I thought, well, I'm interested in this. I'm curious to see what he says. It totally took me in a different direction. I'm just going to stop there. You, everybody I think should and would benefit from reading this, especially, and I'm recommending it or affirming it in this light that especially as reformed people with reformed theology, we tend to double down, maybe sometimes a little bit too much, not to the extent of it's always worth to double down on the truth, of course, but, but there's something we said about being more creative, being more understanding, have a greater sense of knowledge, being a better communicator because you read, you study, you have curiosity that is wide and broad. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily need to be deep, but wide and broad. So this book range by David, David Epstein is right in that vein. I think that a lot of our listeners will be encouraged by it, find interesting things to reflect on, and also find that they might be inspired to look at learning and reading and studying and watching all these things in a slightly different light in a way, again, that you might not expect it. So I'm referring with this, it came to me by recommendation, and then it has come to me as a surprise in the way that I've enjoyed it. So it felt like the right thing to say, listen, everybody should pick up a copy or just go to your library. Go to your library. Check yeah. it out. Read it. Looks like a good book. I'm, I'm looking at it on Amazon.com. Looks like it would be an interesting read off to check that out. Yeah. It's kind of like a kind of classic because I think we've been taught in this like host kind of Adam Smith way that like the way in which we get ahead now is to become hyper specialized. And there's something to be said for that, right? Like that knowledge can be super helpful. But what I appreciate is David Epstein doesn't throw out the baby with the bathwater on this. He says, yes, for certain types of tasks, what he calls kind disciplines or kind activities, things with like immediate feedback loops, like set rules, where it's very clear there's compartmentalization, things like chess or golf. Yes, that can be helpful, like playing the piano. But for most of life, it's actually not. Yeah. And so he makes a really strong case through lots of great studies. It's not just all these anecdotal things, but it's a way to kind of test and challenge the way in which you understand the world and how you learn. And I don't know, I'm loving it. It's also like, I think you and I are kind of curious people. Yeah. And we've, we've made the argument like you should read wide, read above your head, read broadly. But that interest in being like a polymath, it just turns out that that might actually be the way to go and you'll be more creative. You'll have actually greater ideas. And actually, like, so when I read this, honestly, I thought about you and I a lot, Tony, not in a super weird way, but like in this weird, in this way that's like, I think we use like a lot of like analogy language when we talk yeah. about theology. Yeah. And part of this book is talking about how like that is the best way to learn. In fact, like, because this whole thing about like, Copernicus and Kepler, like they, Kepler was like trying to describe things that literally nobody had language to even try to understand yeah. or comprehend. Yeah. And so we talk about that a lot with theology, right? Because there is no language in some ways to talk about these things, but that creativity doesn't just come if you just chill and sit in your couch and just read in one or study in one particular vein of life. It's when you really open yourself up to like reading and talking about all kinds of things. And God has given us this great big giant world with all kinds of knowledge. 
So enjoy and yeah. learn and read lots of things. Like do the thing which you never thought you'd be interested in. Try it out. So go ahead and check out range. I like it. I think there's like a lot of implications for our understanding of theology. That would be super helpful to us. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, every once in a while, um, I get uh, somebody who's starting a new podcast that messages me to ask for advice or for ideas or, or sometimes they want, you know, help getting started. And one of the things that they often ask is like, how, how is it that you're, you've been able to sustain 300 plus, you know, 300, whatever that current episode count is more or less never taking a break and, um, where other shows tend to like fizzle out. And one of the things that I, I often tell people is don't pigeonhole yourself into like a particular gimmick too much. Because right. if you pigeon yourself, like, let's say you're doing a, a podcast that's just about um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Well, what are you going to do when you finish episode 107? Like, you're going to keep going? Well, then you're going to have to change, like, the very nature of your podcast. Yeah, uh, and, and that, like, is exactly the idea here is, like, the re one of the reasons that we are able to keep going is because, like, we're a generalized – I mean, we're specialized in that we talk about Reformed theology or theology from a Reformed perspective. But we're generalized in that we don't have, like, a particular, like, gimmick or – topic that we've locked ourselves into. And it's that same kind of idea. And I think that this is, you see this in academics too, like in biblical studies, you'll have people that do like a PhD on one, like one set of verses in the gospel of Luke. And then they wonder why they can't get a job teaching somewhere. It's like, well, your, your only expertise is in this like teeny tiny niche topic. How are you supposed to teach other, other topics when you've only ever really studied this in depth? Versus someone who does a much broader PhD may have a harder time finding a program to get into to do their PhD, but they're much more marketable once they're finished with their PhD. Um, and I think that that goes to any set of skills. If you can only do one thing, but you can do it really well, if you find the right job, then you're probably the only person who can do it. But finding that job is going to be tough. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to check this out. I think this will be kind of my next non-theology book. Um, non-theology in air quotes, everything is theology, but non-theology book uh, that I, I take a look at. Yeah, I recommend. I think I had you in mind in some respects. I think you would like it. It's it's not quite like productivity that we talked about, but it is about how do I think more creatively? How do I communicate more effectively? And there's a, a massively strong case here for range. And yeah. I I just think that's that's super awesome. So speaking of gimmicks, like, gimmicks, like what are you denying against on this episode? So um, I, I'm denying against something I saw at the grocery store. Uh, it's a well-established, long-standing magazine that has basically become nonsense. I'm denying against National Geographic. So oh, National Geographic used to be like nature and anthropology, but like current anthropology and maybe a little bit of like archaeology. It used to be very objective, very scientific. Um, the most recent article of National Ge or uh, issue of National Geographic that I saw at the grocery store was 50 Influential Figures of the Bible. And so, of course, I picked it up and I thumbed through it and I was dismayed to find not only was Jesus just listed as one among all of the other 50, but several of the figures that they were listing as the most influential figures of the Bible were not even in the Bible. So, for example, they have a whole landing page on people in the Bible. So I guess they've been doing like a, I don't know, like an ongoing I don't know, series or whatever. Uh, but they list here an article that says... Where is it? Um, there was an article about a Babylonian, meet the biblical heroine who beheaded a Babylonian and saved her people. 
I will give you a million dollars if you can tell me which woman in the Bible this describes. My word. Uh, I would love the things I could do with that kind of money. Um, is, it, is somebody actually in the Bible? See, yeah, that's why I felt safe taking this bet because it's not. <laughs> it's Judith from the book of Judith, which is not in the Bible. So, I mean, I guess maybe you could argue as a Roman Catholic it's in the Bible, but like, come on. This is supposed Sweet. to be National Geographic. They're soft. supposed to know the difference here. They're supposed to do their research. So, yeah. So don't don't go buy Certainly don't buy this. Don't waste your money on it. And if you buy it, be ready for a nice heaping dose of second commandment violations when you get to the Jesus section. Uh, but, yeah, I'm just I'm denying this sort of this sort of movement in academics and in like modern I don't know, investigatory academics. I don't know what you want to call it. Sort of like the history channel, the, the discovery channel kind of thing. It to sort of like feel like they have to investigate this stuff and then get it, and then they just get it all wrong. Like they don't even do basic, basic levels of research on this. Um, there was one article that was like, um, meet the woman who uh, King David's rise cost this woman everything. And it's like Rizpah, which was like one of Saul's lesser known concubines. He he just like, you know, there's like four passages in the Bible that talk about her. And they make it sound like David did this terrible thing to Rizpah. But like David actually attempted to defend all of Saul's offspring. Like he didn't want to kill all of Saul's offspring. And so that was that was really frustrating for me to see that. So I guess maybe don't check it out is the recommendation here. Don't check out this issue. Don't check out what National Graphic has to say. My son is very upset about these articles as well, as you can hear. He is so angry about the Rizba article. He just can't contain himself. Yeah. I Listen, I feel him on that because I'm, I'm with you. It's one of those things where, have you noticed this like around, that this always happens like equivalently with like the History Channel around Easter. There were inevitably yeah. like some docuseries like, who is the real Jesus? We were answer that question as if, and of course it implies presuppositionally, like the scriptures don't tell us about the real Jesus. Like we need some kind of like extra biblical history, some kind of outside exogenous influence to really explain to us who the real Jesus was. So I'm just going to jump on you with that as like a denial because that I find, if not offensive, personally, just annoying. <laughs> There's like all this material Maybe that is like in the the spirit of like my affirmation with range, like this doubling down on this narrowness where it's like, let's talk about Saul's concubines because like nobody's written about them. And we're going to just blow this up into such an extent where it's like, well, we really need to give them a voice because in some way David did this great injustice. Yeah. And it's, you know, having too much time and not uh, enough of attentional focus on legitimate things, the first priorities, the first principles. If we're going to spend our time trying to like unearth what might be shocking, if only because it's not accurate. So I'm totally with you. But I see that like, again, a lot at like Easter or like when we celebrate Easter or Christmas. Like, here's a documentary on Jesus, and you didn't know the real Jesus. And it's always, again, usually the word real is involved, as if, like, all this, I cut to Paul, who's like, listen, I met the real Jesus. Yeah. And the one that you're describing is not him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, I, I didn't read any of the article on Jesus, but like, they also on their website have an article that's like, how does Jesus's childhood influence the gospels? And I'm like, like, not at all, like a verse and a half worth. So it's, it's kind of like, just, just, if you want to read about the Bible, then read some real scholars who read, read the Bible. about the Bible yeah, and read the Bible. Um, 
And it, I think it speaks to this sort of like generalized, first of all, the Bible has become a subject of fascination, which says a lot about our culture, that it's no longer right. like the bread and butter. Kids right. used to learn to read because their families read them the Bible. That was how they learned to read. There wasn't a lot of other education. They just learned to read that way. And um, it's become a subject of fascination, but also it's become a, a subject that people still feel the need to know something about, even if they don't fully understand why. So yeah, I just think it's not even like, I used to say like, yeah, these kinds of things could be good discussions. It's not even that. Like if you want to talk to someone about Jesus, you should just talk to them about Jesus. Don't try to have some clever intro about this thing you were reading in National. Just talk about Jesus. Just the real Jesus. Not not the real Jesus that the quest for the historical Jesus or the Neo right. National Geographic Jesus. Like the actual Jesus of the Bible. Not the not the Christ of faith. The Just, just Jesus. It's just Jesus. There's no, just, no modifier just, necessary. Just, yeah, it's one of the, it's would you say it's one of those things where it's like somehow along the way the Bible didn't become a primary source, though it was yeah. always accepted that way. And if you study it and understand it, even in its in its own historicity, it stands on its own. It is a primary source. Right. But because it is intimately coupled appropriately with a religious expression, that somehow invalidates it as a primary source. So we need to like in our modern contemporary culture go outside and find like, again, like, let me get historical sources. And even sometimes I see like Josephus isn't even acknowledged as that kind of source. Instead, it's like, let, we're going to find a manufacturer and be able to speak into this way. And we would say, listen, God is playing like Psalm 19 style. He gives general and specific revelation. And it is 100% accurate because God always tells us the truth about the way things are. Yeah, for real. And so that is the bottom line. So the real Jesus is contained in God's holy scriptures to us. It's unvarnished. It's the way we ought to understand it. We don't need anything else outside influences, though. And I'm not talking about like commentary. I'm just talking about like those who would say the Bible is insufficient or does not portray for us an accurate representation of Jesus. That is absolute nonsense. Why? Because God loves us and he wants us to understand who he is and the way that he's revealed himself in that way. And he gives it to us in the scriptures. So not to mention, like, do we have any joy in salvation that God, the father would give his son who would condescend to become like us, yeah. but without sin and have eyeballs and blood vessels and be tired and have to eat food and then die the death of a human being on a cross. Like you just got me started, Tony. Yeah. This is, yeah. We, we need to transition. Otherwise, I'm just going to go Philippians 2 style all over this. Okay, let's do it. That's true. We, we could, I mean, we could, we say this all the time and it's true when we say it, but this really is a topic that probably bears more discussion from a, almost like an apologetics, cultural commentary kind of perspective. For sure. We couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't do it justice in one episode, let alone just like the 20 minutes we can devote in a affirmation denial segment. Yeah, for sure. And I should say at this point, like, and we're slightly ahead of schedule, but not much in the way we're recording this. You sent me, was it a meme or was it like a, uh, it was just a text and it was, it was making poking fun at podcasters who was like, oh, yeah. Let's get right into the topic at the yeah. 40 minute mark. It's true. It's true. <laughs> That's the beauty of podcasting though, is you can, you just don't listen to us if you don't want to. Listen, there are no rules, loved ones. We we do what we want. I, that That's not like a weird libertarian perspective. I'm just saying there are no, there is like no particular regulative principle with when you need to start a topic, even on like a reform podcast. Would you agree? It's true. Yeah. I mean, just it, it, if you don't like the podcast, don't listen to the podcast or skip forward. You can just skip forward. It's not like 
live yeah. television. Not, not like anyone watches live television anymore, but it's not like live television. You just push fast forward until you hit that little 15 second button a couple times. Yeah, that's true. Listen, maybe people are not comfortable with this. We don't actually know. We don't get a report that says like you skipped anything that we said. We don't actually know. That's true. But now that I think about it, if I ever meet somebody who listens, that's the first question I'm going to ask is, have you ever skipped anything that I've ever said? <laughs> I'm going to be like episode 327. What was Jesse's <laughs> denial? Go, go. I don't even know the answer to that. How dare you? Blocked. It's true. Well, let's let's jump on into some Lord's Prayer action. At the 27 minute mark. So we're 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 ahead of schedule. Last week we didn't start it literally until 40 minutes, which was exactly that that's why that meme was like so perfect. There was like for a second, there was a part of me that was convicted, and I was like, Yeah, I'm fine. So let's talk about the Lord's Prayer. And again, as has been our custom as we've been praying this together. And I want to, again, uh, confirm and affirm to everybody that you ought to be using this, like you've said, as both like a model in which to pray, but there's no harm in using the exact words. I think you and I have made a strong case that it's helpful to use these words. So because we're talking about specific words, let me read aloud one more time. And by that, I mean one more time on this episode, because it's going to come up again, the prayer that Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse nine, Jesus says, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we're we're moving again from one petition to the next, and we're finding ourselves in this place where we're asking, and I think in some ways this can cause some small amount of debate, that God would lead us away from temptation. And so it, probably we should start with parsing out what it means that we're asking God to lead us away from temptation, but we're not saying to God, would you not tempt me? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a couple different, there's some elements to this that we, we aren't going to have time to go fully in depth on, but they need to be at least verbalized. So this this is a passage that can be a little bit of a challenge because depending on how you understand it, you have to square it up with other other sections of the Bible, right? So there are sections of the Bible where it seems very clearly that God um, leads us into temptations. And we can talk about what that word temptation means and what the contexts are, but just right off the bat, he, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. Right. So, so on one level, it's, it's biblically true that God does lead people into temptation. And then you have passages like in James one, where it says God tempts no one with evil. So we have right. to understand, I think, carefully what this text is saying. And I think our, most of our English translations don't really help us to get at the understanding that is there. So most English translations and the way most people memorize it here, read something like lead us not into temptation. And so they, the, the phrasing, the placing of that word, not sort of implies that it's kind of like not into temptation is the destination and lead us is, so it's a positive command or a positive request to lead us to this, this location, not into temptation. That's actually not supported by the Greek. And I've heard entire sermons and entire, I've read entire articles that are arguing from the English text. It's really clear. They're not doing any Greek exegetical work that that's the way we resolve this. 
that what we're asking God to do is to lead us into a place where we do not face temptation. Like that's the outcome is not into temptation. Lead us there. The Greek text is very straightforward. It's do not lead us into temptation. Right. Right. And you could even be more emphatic and say like, never lead us into temptation. But that word not is negating the, the verb lead. So it's, it's a request for God not to do something. It's a request for God to not lead us into temptation. And that's, that's important because if we, if we're praying for God to lead us into not temptation or lead us, not lead us not into temptation as this destination, then that causes some challenges for why, why then would we pray that when Jesus was led by the Holy spirit? Like, do we not want to follow after Jesus's lead? And if we don't understand this passage kind of in the context that we're asking God to not do something, then I think we might get a misunderstanding of what we're actually asking for. So the the Greek, as I said, is very straightforward. It's just simply uh, do not lead us into temptation or never lead us into temptation. So in this petition, what we are asking for God to do is to refrain from the activity of leading us into temptation, which means that on some level, we have to acknowledge that it's a possibility that he would lead us into temptation. Um, I don't know whether we'll go there or not, but there's there's a relatively straightforward way to square that up with James. So we don't have to worry about this causing some sort of irreconcilable contrast or conflict in the Bible. But we do have to honestly square with the fact that what we're asking God to do is not to lead us into temptation, meaning he could potentially and sometimes does. I think that that's a that's a maybe not an implication but it's suggested by the text that God sometimes does lead us into temptation. And so we're petitioning him not to do that. Yeah. I see this somewhat as kind of like what we were talking about before in the affirmations and denials to bring it together. This, this idea that I think you're right. Like God could, but we're also like trying to stand in the shadow of our first brother. We're taking on all that he's accomplished on our behalf and saying, because Jesus has gone through, he's recapitulated, he's rebooted in some ways, humanity in the proper sense, by undertaking and going into the place, into the stead, into the, that complete vulnerable space of being actually tempted and doing it to such a degree where he has had perfect obedience that we receive his righteousness. In some ways we're saying like, Father, would you prevent me from having to experience that because Jesus has done it on my behalf? Yes. In some ways to me, like I think of, you know, John Adler saying like, when Jesus says like, can you drink the cup? And they're like, oh yeah, definitely. And he's like, no, <laughs> you cannot. Yeah. There's like a great kindness in God. He's saying, ask that you would be spared because Jesus was not. Ask that you would not be forsaken, that you'd be remembered because Jesus was. And here we find that in this prayer by way of like negative, which is something kind of unique to your point, right? It's saying like, would you ask for God to do the thing that you don't want to be done? And that's a little bit weird, at least in our language. Yeah. But its meaning is really important because, again, notice like the Lord's prayer is not in the affirmative. It's not like, Father, do not tempt me. That's like a wholly unnecessary prayer. Instead, it's like, do not lead, like you were saying, do not lead me in temptation, which is, as my understanding, do not allow me to be near the allure of sin. Do not bring me near to the devil. Do not permit me to be in a situation where the enticement of sin will be greater than I can bear. And the only reason we can pray that is because there is one who has gone before us, who again, is like us in every way, but what yet without sin, who has borne up underneath that temptation, who carried that mantle completely. And so therefore transfers righteousness by active obedience through imputation to us. We're asking that to be applied to us in our daily living. 
And in some ways, I can't think of anything more practical. It's basically like saying, God, would you pre- prevent me from getting into situations where there's going to be massive nuclear destruction, <laughs> like in my own life, in my relationships? Would you do that for me? Who wouldn't want to ask that? Like, spare me. Like, so one of the things, speaking of range and analogous kind of conversation, one of the things when my wife and I travel, we always pray, or I always pray over our time of travel. One of the things I often pray is in the negative, that God would spare us, that he would not uh, allow us to encounter like breakdowns, that the car itself would maintain its composure, that my wife, who is often driving very graciously, that she would be made alert, that we would be spared from calamity, that the trip would be easy. In some ways, that's what we're asking for in this prayer, that in this position of saying, God, would you make my way, my path easy? Would you crush these large boulders into the softest sand between my toes yeah. because you are great and gracious. And because you are the head crusher, you are the one that can take away all of this. And it is an asking of this kind of like great favor of God, isn't it? Because he has through his son made a way. So it comes at a cost. It's a bit like asking like, would you apply the price that's already been paid onto my own life? so that I might be spared, knowing all the while that if God does not spare us from that, if in fact we are in some ways led into a path of temptation, that he would also in the same way as Paul talks about, spare us by way of saying there is an out, there's a way of escape. That also comes through what has been accomplished through Jesus. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, we are going to probably break this into two episodes just because both of these clauses are are so packed with meaning and they're, they're, they're worth they're worth investigating and devoting the time to. But by breaking them into two pieces, we also need to be careful not to overly separate them. Because sure. the the second clause of this petition, which is deliver us from evil, isn't just this abstract, totally separate. It's not lead us into tem- lead us not into temptation, full stop, deliver us from evil. It's not two petitions, right? So the but deliver us from evil is a explanation of what it means for God not to lead us into temptation. So we'll talk about what it is and we'll get into questions about is that deliverance from evil or from the evil. We'll get into all that next week. But the the point of this is that we are, and I I like the way that you articulated that, in this petition, we're not, um, we're negatively asking God. And what I mean by negatively is we're, we're asking him not to do something and in so doing that, we're basically asking him to protect us. So just like when you say, God, spare us from any any you know, road accidents or bad construction, whatever it is you're asking him to spare you from for safety on the road, you're asking him to protect you from those things. And this functions very much the same way. And so that's that's part of where the resolution with James comes in is what James teaches us is that it's not God that tempts us with evil. It's, it's our own, it's our own evil desires that tempt us. with yes. evil. And so when we pray to God and ask him not to lead us into temptation, we're asking him to deliver us from evil. And that's the means by which we're asking him to lead us not into temptation or to, to not lead us into temptation is by delivering us from evil. First and foremost, from the evil that's inside our own hearts, right? Yes, it, right with, without the evil in our hearts, temptation is a relatively neutral thing, right? right? There are good things out there. And apart from the evil desires that we have, we can discern what good things are appropriate to grasp at what time and what things are not, right? And if there was no evil in our hearts, we would never be tempted to reach after or grasp after something that wasn't a good thing. But there is. And so in this petition, we really are praying for God to protect us first and foremost from ourselves, but then also from the 
wickedness that's out there that is actively seeking to get us, which is where we we do get into next week's differences between evil as an abstract concept and the evil one. We'll talk about that, but it's it's all wrapped up into that concept that there are forces internal to us and external to us that are are actively trying to lead us into sin and towards destruction. And that is what we're asking God to protect us from when we ask him not to lead us into temptation. And that's somewhat of like a minority and unpopular opinion, isn't it? Maybe not like in the reformed yeah. world or tent, but I'm totally with you. That's why I think it's worth like parsing them out in some ways, bifurcating them at the expense of maybe somehow compromising like their continuity, which is also important. But we, I, can we just admit, uh, let me just say this. I'll just admit, I'm a person born with a natural affection for sin. Yeah. So I have no shortage of opportunities to consider sin and to consider the desire to commit it in like literally in infinite varieties. Yeah. That is my disposition. So like, for instance, when Jonathan Edwards speaks of this, you know, when he talks about like sinners in the hands of an angry God, what I think I was, I'm most moved about in that particular ser- sermon is how he goes to this great length of, again, of analogizing the fact that you're kind of like on a slippery log. Like you're trying to walk across some chasm of slippery log. It's your own weight that will cause you to stumble. That's all it takes. And so here, what we're saying is, God, you know us best. You tell us the truth again about how reality actually is. And the truth that you tell us is that we are naturally depraved. Depraved completely in the sense that every part of us is compromised, which means that every part of us, without the restraint of God, would seek after and have affection for sin. And so, like we said before, when God says no, what he often means is do not hurt yourself. Yeah. But we need some kind of external force, a transcended influence to say to us, I will save you. I will literally save you from yourself. And what, that's what we're asking for here is that, God, we don't even know what, to, what today or tomorrow brings for us. We've asked just now for our daily bread, and it's ours because you promised it. And part of that daily bread is to say, not only would you give us righteousness and blessing, bless the work of our hands, but would you save us from calamity, the kind of calamity which I would willingly run headlong into on my own nature. Because I think somehow the temporary rewards of seeking this sin will somehow be greater than the enduring costs that will result because of it. And we're asking God to say, would you save me from myself? And so this prayer puts, I think, for me, into focus two things. One is how good God is to us, that he would do this, that he knows what's best to us like a good father. But the second, that if I'm not praying this, I'm going to be prone to run into situations while I compromise everything. And that we're always this far away, not from losing our salvation, but from making a shipwreck of our salvation, aside from God himself, who reminds us that even in this great spiritual sense, we're still contingent beings. We need God every day, not just on the day of our justification, but every day that is subsequent to that, where we are working towards some kind of way in which we are working out our salvation as he wills and works within us. Yeah. And the other thing I think is important, we haven't really touched on this too much throughout this prayer, but the the context of Christ teaching this prayer, I think is really important because this is one of those passages of scripture that gets memorized and recited. We sometimes abstract it from its immediate context, but immediately preceding this, he says in verse eight, he says, do not be like them referring to the Gentiles for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And every one of these petitions in the Lord's prayer is something God is already doing. And so it's not, it's not, um, we should be really careful when we pray, the, particularly when we pray the Lord's prayer or the model prayer, whatever we're calling it. We're not asking God to do new things, 
right? Yes. God, God is already hollowing his name. He's already uh, bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. He's already sustaining us with our daily bread. He's already forgiving, forgiven us and forgiving us of our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And he's already protecting us from evil and lead, and not leading us into temptation. So again, th- there are times where God withdraws his protection because that's the other thing to keep in mind with this clause is that even for unbelievers, God is restraining their sin, right? That's that's part of what common what we talk about. We talk about common grace. Almost right. nobody or probably nobody is as wicked and evil and sinning continuously as they could be, right? Some people are more wicked than other people. So so some people are restrained by God more than others. And there are various ways he does that. The second use of the law, we talked about um, just common grace, the fact that we still have a conscience. There are all these things that God is doing that restrains all people from sin and restrains his people even more so from sin, right? The presence right. of the Holy Spirit restrains us from sin. There are times where God withdraws that restraint, even, even with Christians, right? Our confessional documents tell us that sometimes God allows his children to fall into serious sins in order to teach them and chastise them, right? There's a purpose in it. But what we have to acknowledge, and this is part of why I think like this particular understanding of this clause or this petition is not super well liked in the the broader Christian world, but is typical in the reformed world, is this strong understanding of God's sovereignty, right? So when we say that, we say that God is restraining our sin and we pray for him to not lead us into temptation, we're actually praying for him to continue the activity he's already doing, leading us into temptation or allowing us to fall into temptation. That's a quote unquote passive act. God's never passive, but passive ish, right? That's a passive act in which God ceases to do something. And so when we pray that God will not do that, that's what we're saying is continue to protect us from temptation, continue to deliver us from from the wickedness of our own hearts, from the evil that's in the world. And in so doing that, do not lead us into temptation. That is not to say, just like there are times where a Christian may go hungry, right? We talked about that last week. There are proverbial, uh, there are proverbial times. The, the statement that the Christian will not go hungry, there's this passage in one of the Psalms where I think David says something like, I've never seen the righteous go hungry. Well, that's just not, not true in a practical 100% of the time promised sense. There are genuine Christians in the world that will starve to death today, right? That's a reality in the world. The same is true here. It's a proverbial, sort of a proverbial statement that when we say that God does not tempt anyone, we say he's not tempting people with evil. He's not causing evil. Right. But right. there are there are times where for our good and for his glory, he allows us to fall into that temptation. And that's all the more reason that we should pray this way, because that is a sanctifying prayer. It's a prayer that God uses to change us and transform us, to give us this desire not to fall into evil to give us this desire to be delivered from the evil within us and the evil without us, right? That's a prayer that God uses to accomplish the ends of the prayer. And that's really the way it is with all of these petitions. And I just think it's really it's really remarkable that this is so frequently said without a deep level of thought. People pray this without really thinking through what they're praying. And if we're not careful, we really do sort of take this perspective of like, well, God God does tempt us and he does lead us into evil. And, and we're just asking God to do us a solid and stop doing that. That is not right. at all what we're saying. We're asking God to continue his good work of preserving us. Even when we acknowledge he may at times have a good work involved in not preserving us, 
We're asking him to continue that good work that he is already doing. That's in my mind, that's how we resolve that tension that we feel between Christ very clearly being led into the desert to be tempted. Yes, we can do some linguistic stuff with like the difference, the difference between temptation and testing and trials. We can do that. Those are valid, but I don't think we even need to do that. If we recognize God is already doing the good work and almost is always doing the good work of preserving us from the depths of our own wickedness. And although at times he, I don't remember what, what it was, but it was, um, there was a phrase, it sounds like something a Puritan would say, so I'm going to assume it was a Puritan, where it was something like, um, wrath is God's peculiar work or his unusual work. Like God's default is to be kind and just and merciful. Yes. That's that's his default. Yes. And although okay. we have theological explanations that explain how this doesn't violate simplicity, it is, it is, it's not contrary to God's nature to be wrathful, but it's not his default. It's not his default disposition. It's something that we, in a certain sense, this is going to sound terrible, but it's a certain in a certain sense, we have forced him into wrath. Our sin has caused his justice to manifest as wrath right? That's, that's the reality. This is a similar kind of thing. It's not God's default to let us fall into our own sin. It's, it's his default to protect his people and even to protect those who are not his people from the depths of their sin. And that's just, if we can get that in our head and, and be thinking about that, this becomes a prayer that's not like, do me a favor, God. It's praise you, Lord, for the work you're always doing. Please continue that work in my life. That's what we're praying in this petition. Yeah, I think you're totally spot on about that. Like God doesn't need to be to be provoked to love. He needs to be provoked to anger. Right. His disposition is love towards us because he is kind and gracious. And beyond that, what we're asking for here is to God to honor his great love towards his children. Because it's a prayer for children of the Father, those who have been adopted, those who are in Christ, that he would continue to fulfill his promises. So I'm totally with you. One of the things I, I sometimes pray is that God would prevent me from asking for things that he has already done. And sometimes we do this, right? We we just like, we ask God to be kind toward us or to bless the work of our hands or that he would be present with us. And I have to think as bold as this is that we can cut to God being like, yeah, I've already done that. Like ask for something greater. Like that, that is like my, my normative default position for you that I'd be present with you. I've, I've given you the sign seal and I've delivered you to myself by the Holy Spirit. So that's why I think I get floored by this prayer in combination with 1 Corinthians 10, which I think you already referenced before, where Paul says, and, and this is straight up, like full stop, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So here we have God showing up as like the indicative and the imperative once again, saying like, I will provide a way. And what this verse kind of confers to me is that it's equal parts encouraging and condemnation, at least the way I understand it. Yeah. Because what they're saying to me is that every time you fall into temptation, where you allow yourself to be in that, that is because of your sinful desire. Right. It's not because God hasn't in his graciousness provided a way as if like by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might in that moment take a second to process to meditate, to metabolize on the goodness of God, to reassess and to ask for the Holy Spirit's protection. Instead, we want what we want. We do what we want to do, even if that pulls against what God has commanded us in his good law. So I'm totally with you. I think what's better than being spared from a temptation 
is to have a heart that doesn't want to even seek the temptation to begin with. And what we're asking for is that God would continue to transform us in such a way that our sanctification by his power in the Holy Spirit would move us in such a direction that we wouldn't get into the crisis moment, but that we would seek only what is good, that we'd praise only him, that we'd have no other idols at all, that there'd be no gods before him. And in so doing, while we will never achieve that on this side, that we would have an interest in it and that we'd ask God to promote that interest, to accelerate our ambitions toward Christ and toward purity in Christ. And so it makes sense to me that after all of this, giving us our daily bread, our sustenance, that we might move almost in hierarchical levels to saying, God, now that I have been satisfied in who you are, would you protect me from everything that is not who you are? Yeah. And so therefore not make a shipwreck of my faith or my life or my relationships because I trust in you and I want what is pure. That is, I want you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we will definitely pick up a lot of these themes next week as we talk about the second half of this petition. And, and I, I know people often, uh, People often give me feedback that like they just wish that we had more time to talk about these. Really? I mean, that people sounds like that? yeah, that that sounds like I'm making that up. But people people tell me they that they feel like the topics are rushed. And I'm glad that because we're doing this over the summer, because we're kind of spreading it out, it's giving us this space to really digest these things in a slower way. Like it, I'm not scarfing down this burger. I'm like savoring the steak. Right. Like that's the way that I'm looking at this is it's I'm taking time to chew and and to like really Swag meditate on this stuff. Yeah, it, this is the good stuff. And if we're going to pay attention to anything and slow down for anything, it's it's slowing down for the instruction that the Lord has given us on how to how to pray, right. how to pray. And for me, we, we started talking when we started talking about this, we started out by talking about how prayer is by definition, an act of faith, right? You have to start from a position of trusting the Lord. This is just reinforced this with me because all of these petitions are already, you couldn't ask these things of someone that you did not already trust had the ability and the desire to grant them. So so I'm excited to sort of like chew on this uh, petition for the next week as we get ready for the next episode. And I would just really encourage people to like, slow down during their prayer time and really pray, pray the Lord's prayer during your prayer time, but yes. think through it, like really slow down and pray and meditate on each petition, each clause. What do they mean? What are you asking the Lord for? If you do that, I really do think that your prayer life will be changed. I, I just, I just do like God, this is God's instruction for us on how to properly pray. Um, you know, and then on top of that, the Holy Spirit enables us to pray and he fills in the gaps for us. I just, I don't think you can underemphasize or spend too much time talking about this particular topic. It's all about approach, isn't it? I think that there are different traditions that employ this prayer as if somehow by repeating these words, it accomplishes something merely because you are just articulating what has been written. Right. And I think obviously what we're after is just say it and trust God to work in your life, to read you as you read this prayer. But it is that repetition, that constant bathing in this, that does transform us, I believe. And when we approach it in this way, where we say, Holy Spirit, you lead us into all truth. The Son has given us this prayer to pray, which we believe to be the truth. Yeah. And what we find in it is this amazing depth. It's this amazing landscape of all the things we've talked about so far. 
And it's not that every time we need to like really relish in every single thing, but I do trust that even as I pray this, as I've been trying to put this into my practice more recently, that God continues to illuminate that he is faithful to bring about new understanding and different applications that comport with all of the scriptures. And the one thing I realize above all things, as you and I have ch- chatted about this, and as you and I have tried to pray this, is that it is the most brilliant prayer. There is just nothing yeah. that holds a candle to it. So no matter how we feel about the way we pray, pray or the way in which we have heard others pray that we think are particularly improved, like just impressive or improve something upon us. This really is the model. And there's something to be said for going after these words and just continuing to repeat them, asking that the Holy Spirit would do something with them, yeah. that we're not trying to manufacture something. We're not trying to like create like some kind of magic ordering of words that God would do something for us, but merely saying, God, you have asked that we pray this way. Your son told us to use these words. He says, pray in this way. Yeah. Would you do something in my life as I pray in this way that is different than anything I've ever experienced in prayer before? Because I am just returning to you the very words that you've given me. Yeah, There's something special about that. And this is in some ways saying, God, you have hegemony over my logic and my reasoning. You've said that we ought to pray this way. I'm going to do it. I'm going to see what happens. Yeah. Well, since we're coming back to this next week, I know we usually spend like 45 minutes with all of the outro announcements, but I'm going to just bypass that. And Jesse, I'm just going to say until next time, honor everyone. Love that brother. Sky comes for